0: is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, welcome once again to Trinity Grace. It is good to see you and we are glad that you're here this morning, both those of you who call Trinity Grace home and those of you who are guests with us today. Over the past few weeks, we've been in a series on Sunday mornings looking at the life of David together, and the plan is to continue moving through the life of David up to Easter Sunday here at Trinity Grace. We've mentioned that David is a prominent figure on the pages of Scripture. He's mentioned hundreds of times on the pages of the Old Testament and dozens and dozens of times on the pages of the New Testament. His life is primarily told in the books of First and 2 Samuel, with more background and details given in the books of First Chronicles and First Kings in your Old Testament. David, you might know, also authored 78 of the 150 psalms that we find in the middle of our Old Testaments. And we'll see as we continue looking at the life of David over the coming weeks that he is a multifaceted figure. He's the king of a growing nation. He's a warrior that leads God's army in many victories over their enemies. He's a poet who writes psalms that express the full range of human emotion. He's a man who leads God's people in righteous living in many ways. He's a husband and a father, likely a brother. He's also one who experienced his fair share of moral failure. He was an adulterer, a murderer, allowed his family to slip into despair and darkness towards the end of his life because he was passive. He also knows what it's like to experience and to taste the goodness of God's forgiveness in his life. Like we mentioned last week, David shows us what it looks like to follow God in this world characterized by both beauty and ugliness, by both light and darkness, by both righteousness and sin. In David, we see a complicated, multifaceted man attempting to follow God in this fallen world. And this morning, as we look at portions of 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 20, we see David as a friend. David as a friend. David, uh, it's important to know at this point in the David story that David has been anointed king. Remember that happened back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, but he is not yet sitting on the throne. He's been anointed, but not installed. Saul is the king of Israel sitting on the throne in these chapters. And Saul is threatening David's life here in chapters 18, 19, and 20. In fact, over the course of these three chapters, Saul attempts to kill David six times, either directly himself or indirectly by sending David into harmful places. This morning, we're going to take a look at the relationship between David and Jonathan. Now, it's important to know that Jonathan is King Saul's son. Which means that he is next in line to the throne of Israel. The person standing in his way is David himself. And the relationship we see between David and Jonathan is something extraordinary. And there's a word used in our passage that describes this strong relational bond that David and Jonathan have with one another. And I want to invite you to pay attention to it as we read from portions of 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 20. Pay attention to this term that's used that signifies this relational bond. The passage is printed for you in your bulletin. You follow along as I read. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and bow and his belt. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thanks. Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I'll do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king but let me go that I may hide myself in the field to the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you've brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Well, This is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Earlier this year, Rachel and I watched the movie Lars and the Real Girl. It's a movie that came out back in 2007 that stars Ryan Gosling, who plays a character named Lars. And Lars is a man who finds it impossible to make friends or socialize in any kind of normal way throughout the movie. Lars lives on the same property as his brother Gus and his sister-in-law Karen. He lives in the converted garage on their property. And Gus and Karen throughout the movie are constantly trying to get Lars to come over for dinner. Uh, to socialize with their friends, to attend church with them, to engage any way relationally with other people. And they're mostly unsuccessful. You know, he always declines dinner. He never wants to go out and spend time with them because he wants to avoid all social contact, finding it difficult to interact with family, with his coworkers, with members of his church. Well, one day, a package arrives in the mail and Lars tells Gus and Karen that he has a visitor that he met on the internet. He tells them that she's a wheelchair-bound missionary of Brazilian descent named Bianca. And this development excites Gus and Karen until they find out that Bianca is a life-size doll that Lars ordered online. Lars introduces Bianca to the town people, and due to their concern for Lars, everyone treats her as a real person throughout the movie, Bianca. He takes her to church. He takes her grocery shopping. He spends time with her at restaurants. It's completely friendly, completely just friendly. And due to their concern for Lars, everyone treats her as a real person. And Lars soon finds himself interacting more and more with real people. And over the course of the movie, Lars is drawn further and further away from the doll, Bianca, as he develops and deepens real relationship with other people. Eventually, at the end of the movie, Lars decides that Bianca is dying. And he decides that he's going to let her go. And at the end of the movie, it leads you to believe that Lars is finally taking steps in the right direction. Even having a funeral that people attend for Bianca. He slowly but surely is becoming more relationally engaged as the movie progresses. And it's a really fascinating movie. While the movie's way over the top in how it portrays Lars' relationship with Bianca, it shines a light on a very real problem that I think we all experience to one degree or another. And that's the difficulty we experience when it comes to relationship with other real people. One of the reasons the movie is so difficult to watch is because you know as a Christian that the story it tells is not the way it's supposed to be. It's awkward. It's awkward. It makes you cringe. It makes you sad for this character that's being portrayed on the TV screen. We know that we were created for a relationship. We were created in the image of a relational God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Real relationship is crucial for us in this world that's so often characterized by deep loneliness and disconnection. But relationship, as you know as well as I, because of sin, isn't as easy as we'd like. It can be really difficult. We could list a lot of reasons this morning why relationship is difficult. One reason that it's hard that comes to my mind is because people leave. Especially in a city like San Antonio where you have military families and medical students and large corporations. People are here for short seasons. It's like you're saying hello and goodbye. Hello and goodbye. We've lived here for 10 years, me and my wife and my family, and we've said goodbye to more people than we wish we ever did. And you build a relationship with these people, and then they have to move, and it's painful. And if it happens enough, you might even decide it's easier not to invest in relationship. Easier to be solitary so that you don't have to say goodbye to close friends anymore. Relationship with others is also hard because we're naturally just self-protective people. On one hand, we've got a longing to be deeply known and loved, but on the other hand, we're scared to let anyone see our true selves out of fear that if they saw the real us, they might turn around and leave. Relationship can make us uncomfortable, especially when people get close. I once heard a guy say that he chose to attend a Presbyterian church because he said, it was the place where I was least likely to be hugged. In other words, the place where he was least likely to have people press into his life, the Presbyterian Church. Welcome. We're Presbyterian, by the way. You might not know that. Relationship is also hard because we tend to treat relationships with a consumer-vendor mentality, a consumer-vendor mentality. We never really look beyond the surface of what's in it for me. What can I get out of this relationship? And if you and I are supplied with what we want at an appropriate cost, we're good. But if not, we're gone. And that's really a commercial transaction. That's the kind of transaction, the kind of relationship I have with my local HEB. It it treats people as less than persons. Relationships become commodities. And it's how we treat relationships with family, with friends, with the church, always thinking in the background, what can I get out of this? Maybe not explicitly, but implicitly. Is this relationship meeting my needs? Is my family engaging enough when I go home for Christmas to visit them? Do the friends I hang out with give me a sense of importance and help me keep ahead? Is the church music good enough? Is the youth group relevant enough? Is the preaching compelling enough? If not, my needs aren't being supplied, then I'm going to take my business to another church. I'm going to take my business and find more fulfilling friends. I'm going to stop spending as much time with my family. And if we're honest, all of us at least sometimes engage relationships somewhere on this consumer-vendor spectrum. And that's why our passage is so important this morning, because it paints a picture of what relationship can be what it was intended to look like. David and Jonathan model for us some characteristics of healthy whole relationship. And what we see is that David and Jonathan are definitely more than acquaintances. Their relationship could even be described with a stronger word than friendship. In fact, what we see in the passage is their relationship supersedes even biological family bonds. The word we read that describes the strength of David and Jonathan's relationship is the word covenant. And when we read scripture, this word is used to describe relational bonds both vertically in our relationship with God and horizontally in our relationship with other people. This idea of covenant. And covenant's a strong word. It's a strong relational bond with another person. A covenant is a relationship that is based on promises made. In a sense, we get a picture of horizontal covenant relationship in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. A lot of you have read the books or seen the movie, specifically in the relationship between Samwise Gamgee and Frodo Baggins. Kids, you might have read the story, you know about it, but there are points in the books where Sam has to remind Frodo of his promise. Remember, Sam promised to journey with Frodo as he destroys the ring of power and they move through danger and difficulty and darkness together. And there's many times that Sam uh, should have probably turned back and went home back to the Shire. But there's time and time again where he looks at Frodo and at one point says, "This I made a promise." Gandalf said, "Don't leave you. Don't leave him, Samwise Gamgee." And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. At another point in the story, Sam notices that Frodo's courage and strength are failing. As he's carrying the ring and he says, I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. And that's more than acquaintance. That's more than friendship, more than even family. That's a picture of covenant, a picture of promise, of a bond that can't be broken. And the Bible would implicitly make the case that we cannot make it without covenant. We can't make it without covenant, without relationships that are based on strong promises and bonds. In fact, we were made for covenant, you could argue. You and I were created in the image of a God who makes covenant. Who covenants with his creation. Who makes relational promises and sticks to them no matter the cost. And there are horizontal covenants represented in this room this morning. Maybe we've never thought about it that way. But relationships that are bound by promises that have been made to another person that call for faithfulness no matter the cost. And one of those covenantal relationships is the marriage relationship. The other covenantal relationship is the one that you have made with the church, if you've joined the church, with the body of Christ. And David and Jonathan give us a picture of the characteristics of these horizontal covenants. And at the end of the day, although covenant relationship can be hard, it can require sacrifice and it challenges our individuality in a lot of ways, we want it. We want it. In fact, we were created for it. It's in our spiritual DNA as we've been created in the image of a covenant-making God. We were created to experience relationships of loyalty, of refuge, of surety. And as we take a look at this part of David's life, we see a few characteristics that jump out to help us think about the covenant relationships we're engaged with. First, we see that covenant requires selflessness. Second, we see that covenant requires commitment. And third, we're going to see that covenant brings comfort. So first, let's spend a few minutes looking at the selflessness that covenant requires. As we pick up our passage, it's important to know that David is gaining momentum in the eyes of the people. Remember last week we read about how he toppled the giant Goliath and he saved the nation of Israel. His stock is rising. People are beginning to recognize and value David's leadership potential. People are beginning to love and to celebrate what David does for them. And while all this is happening, the king that's sitting on the throne, Saul himself feels threatened. He does not like what he sees from David. In fact, Saul would like to see David gone. He wants him out of the picture. And he even tries to get him out of the picture six times in these three chapters. And so with this context in mind, we begin to understand that the covenant that David and Jonathan make with one another required great selflessness. We see selflessness from Jonathan in chapter 18, verse 4, where we read, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, it's important to remember that Jonathan is the future king, right? And David, having been anointed the next king of Israel, is Jonathan's greatest future threat. Jonathan was next in line for the throne, for the prestige, for the honor, for the power. And David is the one man who stands in his way. Yet what we see is Jonathan strip himself of all that's important to him. He sheds his status. He sheds his protection. He sheds his honor. And if that doesn't think, make you think about somebody else that we read about later in the Bible, I don't know what will. But because Jonathan loved David as his own soul and made a covenant with him, a promise, he voluntarily becomes lesser by giving up his robe, his armor, his sword. And this would have been unthinkable in that culture. Completely counterintuitive. I mean, Jonathan would have been expected to eliminate David to take out the rival to his future throne. Instead, what we see is selflessness. We also see selflessness from David. Remember, he knows that he's been anointed the next king of Israel. He knows that he is God's chosen man for that role. And it would have been normal operating procedure for David to wipe out all the relatives of the old king, to remove all of the perceived threats that he had. So David and Jonathan, they promised relational commitment to one another that trampled customary human standards. I mean, this was uncommon fidelity. It would have been completely against the grain of what was normal and expected. Their actions towards one another were completely selfless. What we see is that the covenant between David and Jonathan was characterized by selflessness, by making sure the other person was cared for, by looking out for the other's best interest. And you might be wondering at this point, so what? (laughs) So what? I mean, that's a great overview of how rivals to the throne would have acted in the Iron Age. Thank you. Interesting. But what does this have to do with me? Well, there are covenants represented in this room, as we mentioned earlier. One of the covenants that you've made if you've decided to join the church, this church, this local expression of Christ's body, when you join the church, you actually take vows making promises to these people that are sitting around you right now in all of their beauty and all of their frustrations. And you make these promises not because Trinity Grace and the people here are the greatest or the most beautiful uh, or the kindest of people, the people that will never let you down. You don't make these promises to this church because of what you can get, but because of what you can give. When you join yourself to the church, you're saying implicitly that it's not about me, it's about the people sitting around me. It's about how I can serve and love others, the family of God that he's placed in my midst. And unless there's a category for selflessness in your concept of church membership, you will always be wondering what's in it for you, always asking the church to serve you, always treating others as less than actual people. You'll be engaged in a commercial relationship where it's all about the bottom line of what you get. And it's the same with the other covenant relationship that some of us have in this room, which is marriage. A relationship where you stand and you make promises before people and before God to be there, to focus on the other person, to be there for the other. And look, I understand there are times where that covenant is so violated that the covenant itself is broken by one party or another. And that's a discussion for a different time. But normally, the covenant remains intact. And that covenant can mess with your self-interest. I mean, those that have been married longer than me and Rachel know this. Those that have been married younger or less than us know this as well. It requires selflessness, requires you focusing on the other's best interest, even at your own expense. And you know it'll cost you. It'll cost you when it comes to your comfort, when it comes to your preferences, when it comes to your schedule, when it comes to your choices, when it comes to your plans for your life. I heard somebody the other day, and it constantly changes. Somebody the other day told me, my wife has been married to five different men, and they've all been me over the course of 20 years. It, it just throws a wrench into your idea of self-sufficiency, this covenant you make in marriage. But it's what you were made for to give your life deeply to others, to serve and love and pour yourself out for others. As we make covenant with others, it requires selflessness. That's a given. It requires a focus on the other party where you are concerned with their benefit and their growth and their joy. But when we do that, when we're living for others, we are actually in tune with our design. And it brings great joy and freedom to our hearts, kind of counterintuitively. So, We see that covenant requires selflessness. We also see that covenant requires commitment. Commitment is the second thing that stands out in David and Jonathan's relationship. We see the formation of their commitment to one another in verses 1 and 3 of chapter 18, where it says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. David and Jonathan's love for one another led them to enter into a covenantal relationship or a relationship based on promises that were explicitly made to one another. And the word covenant is very intentionally used in this passage. It was the initial love and affection that David and Jonathan had for one another that led them to make the promises that they made to one another. It was the covenant relationship that was an agreement between two parties who entered into it where requirements were clearly laid out. In this case, the requirement is that Jonathan promised to support David in his calling as new king. And David promises to protect Jonathan and show him kindness once he ascends to the throne. Those are the expectations. And when it comes to a covenant, The requirements are clearly stipulated and there are blessings for keeping the covenant and there are curses for violating the covenant that come along with those requirements. Blessings for keeping the covenant, curses for breaking it. And the solemn promises and solid commitments that David and Jonathan made to one another actually provided the proper context for their relationship to flourish. The covenant they made with each other brought great security and certainty in their relationship. Their covenant commitment gave them the freedom to live openly and authentically with one another, knowing that the other person would not leave. They promised to be there for them. Their commitment to one another was the foundation that actually allowed them to build a strong relationship because they knew they couldn't go anywhere. They were pledging themselves to be there for each other. Their feelings might change, their habits might change, their preferences might change, but their covenant provided the stability needed for relationship to flourish. And in the context of covenant and that secure, committed bond, David and Jonathan could demonstrate to one another steadfast love. And the phrase is actually used by Jonathan in verse 14, where he asks David to show him the steadfast love of the Lord. In other words, Jonathan asks David to demonstrate God's love through their relationship. I want to know more of God by way of being related to you. And it would be hard to overstate the importance of this phrase, steadfast love. It's actually an Old Testament word that's used throughout the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word. It sounds like a Hebrew word. It's one word, hesed, it's guttural, steadfast love. And it's frequently used to describe God's love for his people. It's not just warm feelings. It is tenacious, loyal, dependable love. It's love that will not be scared off. And Jonathan is asking David to show him God through this chesed, through this committed love. And it's in the context of promising this steadfast love we see David and Jonathan take action to enter covenant with each other. In verse 16, it says, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. In the phrase made a covenant, I want you to follow me here for the next three minutes. A little maybe seminary level lesson, I don't know, but um, go with me for a minute, okay? Verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. In the phrase made a covenant is literally, in the Hebrew, it reads, To cut a covenant. To cut a covenant. And that's an appropriate phrase because in the Old Testament, a covenant normally included blood and cut animals. We see this most clearly in Genesis chapter 15, where God makes or cuts a covenant with Abram. And what you see happening back in Genesis 15 is God making promises. He lays out the expectations for what his relationship with Abram was going to look like. And what normally happened when a covenant was made is that animals were killed. They were cut in half and they were laid side by side where the parties of the covenant would then walk through in between the dead animals. That's a way of saying, if I break the covenant that I'm making with you today, if I violate the relational promises that I'm entering into, then may I become like the animals that have been cut in front of me. Well, in Genesis 15, you see something interesting. You see God and Abram make a covenant with one another. But when it comes time to move through the covenant ceremony, to move through the cut animals, God puts Abram in a deep sleep. And then God himself, in the form of a flaming torch and a smoking pot, he moves through the line of cut animals himself. Abram sleeps while God walks through, twice. Twice. And this is significant because if Abram had walked through and taken upon himself the commitment of that covenant, he would have been doomed. It would have been over. He couldn't have kept the agreement. He couldn't have met the stipulations. And so God goes through for himself and for Abram, which means the curse of the covenant broken would fall on God. And that's actually what we see happening on the cross. As Jesus undergoes punishment. In Jesus, God is taking the curse of covenant unfaithfulness upon himself. The punishment falls on God. God shows us how devoted his steadfast love is by cutting a covenant with us and obligates himself to fulfill the terms of the covenant and undergoes the curse of the covenant unfaithfulness himself. And all the while, you and I sit here secure. Abram taking a nap. We're cared for. We're loved. And this is so amazing because it's not what we'd expect. It's not what we normally experience in life. Normally, our contribution is what dictates the strength of a relationship, but not with God. It's all about his covenant commitment to us. And David and Jonathan's relationship paints a small picture of what God has done for each one of us in cutting a covenant so that we might experience his steadfast love. Relationship is built on commitment. It just so happens that our relationship with God is based not on our commitment to him, but completely on his commitment to us. And this leads us to our last point where we see the comfort that covenant brings quickly. The story we read about in David and Jonathan, it begins in chapter 18 with covenant, and it ends in chapter 20 with covenant. It's bracketed on both ends by relational faithfulness. Yet all in between, we see animosity and enmity. Between the beginning of chapter 18 and the end of chapter 20, like I said, we see King Saul attempt to kill David six times. And this is a great picture from a literary point of view that covenant is meant to bring comfort to us in the midst of evil and the animosity that we experience in this world. Covenant is meant to ground us in what is true and good and beautiful. And it's comforting to remember that even though we go through tons of difficulty, even though we experience lots of evil and we're disappointed and let down throughout life, that God is faithful to the covenant that he made. He brackets our life with covenant. At the end of the day, it's not about our commitment to God because that would not be comforting. It's all about God's commitment to us, which is incredibly comforting in the midst of life's challenges and difficulty. And God's faithfulness to us in our vertical relationship actually fuels our faithfulness and our horizontal relationships with one another. I'll close with this story this morning that drives home the beauty and the comfort that covenant brings. I've mentioned him before. His name is Robertson McQuilkin, but a while ago he was president of Columbia Seminary. And as he was serving as president, his wife Muriel was a beautiful woman. He, she was the light of his life, but he noticed that she had begun to exhibit some strange behavior. She began repeating herself. She would get lost sometimes. She did strange things. And this just got worse and worse over the months. Well, it turns out that she was a middle-aged woman who'd been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And it gets worse and worse. And Robertson has voices in his life saying, Look, she is never going to get any better. In fact, their doctor said, I don't know what your plans are for the future, your school, or your presidency. I don't know what kind of success you'll have in those areas, but here's what I can tell you. With your wife, Muriel, you will not be successful. That's just the reality of this disease. Well, eventually, they had to get home care for Muriel. And at the time, their house was a half a mile from the seminary, from Robertson's office. And so if you walked there and back, you walked a mile. In recounting that season, Robertson wrote this. During those two years, it became increasingly difficult to keep Muriel home. As soon as I left, she would take out after me. With me, she was content. Without me, she was stressed, sometimes terror-stricken. The walk to the school is a mile round trip. She would make that trip as many as ten times a day. Sometimes at night, when I helped her undress, I found bloody feet. When I told our family doctor, he choked up. Such love, he said simply. I have a theory that the characteristics developed over the years come out in times like these. Now, do you understand what happened? They had a covenant. And the covenant went so deep into her that when her mind began to fail, her heart would animate her body To go to him. To the point of her feet being bloody. And that's what covenant's supposed to do. To go deep into our hearts. And that's a tall order. But God is a great God. He is greater than our hearts and his covenant love is greater than ours. And he can transform us from the inside out so that we might be those who give ourselves to others. Showing them the steadfast love of God all because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit through us. Amen. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you keep covenant with your people, thankful for the way that you've come to pursue us, to show us your deep love, to let us know that we are not alone. We pray this morning that as we Continue to consider the way that you've made covenant with us, that that would fuel the way that we treat one another, the way that we engage in relationship, the way that we show one another your steadfast love. We pray that you would help us to see that even now as we come to your table. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.